Oh, Nasso. Today we turn to an enormously important facet of settling the mind in its natural state. And I'll invite us in the following unguided meditation uh, to be paying special attention, not so much to what arises objectively to us, appearances arising to us, but rather the subjective impulses that arise, emotions, desires, and so forth, intentions, and to observe these as much as we can in the same way that we observe or attend to images, the space of the mind itself. It's difficult. There's no question about it. It's not as easy as simply observing a little bit of chit-chat or mental image, because these things catch you before you're aware of them. It's just in the nature of the beast that our awareness of these subjective impulses, they're called semjung, these emergences from the mind, uh, not so much from the space of the mind, which is that, that out there we can see them. We see them coming, so to speak. You know, we, we can see them as they arrive. But the emotions, if I'm feeling an emotion about Jude, I'm focusing on Jude. Okay, she's the object. But the emotion I'm feeling about Jude is subjective. And so I'm aware of that emotion or desire, intention, whatever it may be, only after it's occurred. William James noted this more than a century ago, that it's always retrospective. Unlike thinking very deliberately, Mary had a little lamb. You can get that right on, right when it's happening. You can be observing it. Like watching a movie, listening to the soundtrack, you can get it right when it's happening. But the emotions you're having about the movie, you're aware of only retrospectively. Now, it may be only a quarter of a second afterwards, but it's still afterwards. They're coming in what I call the back door. Okay? But nevertheless, we can observe them. Now, not observe them like you see a movie, but we can be aware of them without simply identifying with them. We can then really bring the discernment to prayer to see what's the impact of my awareness of the emotion on the emotion. What's the impact of my awareness of the desire on the desire? Right? Of the intention on the attention. So this is very much part and parcel or an integral aspect of settling the mind in its natural state. If we think, no, all I have to do is watch the thoughts, but I can just go ahead and identify with all the thoughts, all of the desires, emotions, intentions, I'm sorry, but your, your mind is not going to settle in its natural state because you're identifying with impulses that are occurring in the coarse mind. And as long as you're identifying with them, you're feeding them, perpetuating them, your mind is not going to sink down. Right? You're not, your mind is not going to dissolve. So this is very much attending to the space of the mind and whatever arises within the space of the mind, and that, of course, includes these subjective impulses. Now, this is enormously important. There are a few things more important. And in terms of, as we're slowly, not quite, but well, we are slowly approaching the end of this retreat. And most of us, probably, perhaps all of us, uh, at least for a while, re-entering a socially engaged way of life. Right? Um, so in our interactions with other people, situations, we can be absolutely certain that just in an ongoing flow, there's going to be desires, intentions, and emotions arising, arising, and rising, right? And some of these will be afflictive. I mean, unless you're already an arhat. You know. Some of these will be afflictive. Uh, delusion, craving, hostility, that's a good short list. And so to be aware of not only afflictive emotions, but afflictive desires. The, it's a, uh, it keeps on cropping up, this definition of the translation of mental affliction, uh, the klesha, as Afflict, afflictive emotions. It sounds really nice, but it's wrong. I think I pointed that out earlier. Delusion is not an emotion. Desire is not an emotion. Craving is not an emotion. Pride is not an emotion. Anger is. Happiness, sadness is, but it's way too narrow. 
So when we think of mental affliction, klesha, don't just think emotions. Think desires. There are afflictive desires. That's not an emotion. That's cognitive, not affective. Right? So it's a very big, very common translation now. And I think that's because we can resonate with it. Oh, afflictive emotions. Yeah, I had a lot of afflictive emotions. But if we're just focusing on those, what about afflictive cognitions of ways of misapprehending reality because we're bloody deluded? That's not an emotion at all. That's, a, that's cognitive, right? And then what about you know, the imbalances of the mind? Excitation, laxity. They're not mental afflictions. I'm sorry, they are, but they're not emotions, right? So broader bandwidth. The point here is that simply in terms of these subjective impulses, some are very wholesome. Some are just neutral, no big deal, and some are really afflictive, some are really damaging, really non-virtuous, right? And so when they come up within our own minds, it's a local problem. If I'm sitting here looking like I'm really meditating, but I'm just seething with resentment and, and even malevolence, but I'm just sitting here, well, at least right now, nobody else is getting any harm. So I'm quarantined. It's like I've got the swine flu, but at least, you know, I'm covered. I've got my mouth covered. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping away, so I'm really suffering. But nobody else is suffering, at least not for the time being, not until I start acting. Maybe I'm giving us some bad vibes, but I think we can handle that. But when I start acting, it's coming out my mouth. It's coming out with my physical behavior. That's when other people start to suffer. And then, there's, of course, I'm getting karma, which means I'm just sowing the seeds for my misery in the future, right? So, here's a point of Shantideva, fifth chapter. If we get to Shantideva in this retreat, which we may or may not, I'm not quite sure. If we do, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go directly to the fifth chapter. Because we're going to be seg- by then, we're going to be segueing out of this retreat into a more socially engaged world- way of life. And I don't know if there is a chapter more relevant to our daily lives than that fifth chapter. The sixth chapter is also magnificent. But the fifth chapter is all about bringing the introspection and mindfulness we've been cultivating here into the world where it really matters, where it will influence our behavior, where we will either inflict more damage or less damage on the world. It's enormously important. And this is, here's this happy with my dear friend and respected colleague, Paul, Paul Ekman. Uh, here's where we just totally join hands. We di- disagree on various points. No big deal. But here's where we met. We just, we're like we're brothers. So he's like an uncle. He's a bit older than mine. We're like holding hands. We're absolutely together on this one. As Paul Ekman says, the spark and the flame. When the, an afflictive emotion, a desire, a cognition arises, that's the spark. And are you aware of it metacognitively, introspectively, before it comes out your mouth, before it comes out in your physical behavior? Are you aware of it before, or do you only learn after it after you've crapped? I'm sorry, but that's a really vulgar term. It should be. After you've crapped on the world. You know? That's too late. What do you do? Say sorry? If you just crapped on somebody, say sorry? It's kind of like, that's going to take a while to clean up. You know? Whereas if you've got some real, maybe it's like vomit. Maybe you're feeling, uh, 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 you know? But you're saying, okay, this is my vomit. Or can I tell you a really disgusting story? Really short? <laughs> it's very memorable. I went up into a glider, you know, a, a, a glider, an airplane with no, no engine, once. And of course, there was the pilot. I was just along for the ride. And I got up there, and it was just weird. And I was having this kind of vertigo, and it kept on dropping. And I threw up. And, but I was the first in a number of people to, um, to be in my position. You know, we had all half an hour or something. But, I, but it was just, just really, I've got a kind of a sensitive stomach. And I threw up in that front seat of the, of the glider. But I knew all these other people are coming behind me. So I threw up, but only into my mouth. 
I'm, I'm, so I'm sitting there trying to enjoy the ride. <laughs> Not. And I'm thinking, if I let this out, this is going to stink up the cockpit for every person that comes in after me. You, you know it's like to clean up vomit smell. It's really hard. It would take hours. So what do you do? Get this yucky stuff out of your mouth, or do you... <laughs> I went for plan B. I said, okay. <laughs> Down it went, you know. It was really, should I say it was really unpleasant? It was. It was really unpleasant. But at least the next people coming in didn't have to smell vomit, you know. That was the spark. That was the flame. You know, it was, but, so I just polluted myself. You know, that's not a mental addiction, it's a stomach upset. But that's really it, you know. Swallow it. Swallow it. Before it comes out, manifesting behavior. Let you be the only victim, and then you'll get over it. You've got the tools, you've got the four measurables, you have these different shamatha methods, you have ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta, you've got all these different ways of transforming experience. So, you know, swallow it. But if you let it out, then what do you do? What do you do except to say, I'm sorry? And then other people get to smell your stink. You know? So, here we are. So that's one point. See, develop the ability here in this serene environment where there's kind of almost nothing except for maybe me bugging us here. You know? Develop here where it's easy. Because it's not going to be that easy out in the world when there are so many demands, people expecting responses and demands on their time and demanding and demanding and we've got to be spot on and responding and responding. Here you don't have to respond to much at all. 22 hours a day, you're on your own, right? So there's one big point. Develop this ability so that you can apply discerning intelligence, discerning mindfulness, recognizing as, as Nagasena, the great Arhat, uh, declared in his Melinda Panya, his dialogue with King Melinda, uh, one of the great classic East-West dialogues, but I won't go into that right now. But he is an arhat, and he defined mindfulness as this ongoing awareness of what's arising in terms of one's behavior, very much including mind, recognizing what is wholesome, what is not wholesome, cultivating one and, and releasing the other. He said that's mindfulness, not just bear attention. Don't be a dummy. Be discerning. Be recognizing what's wholesome, what's wholesome. Cultivate one. Be discerning. None of them are you anyway, so this is not trying to you know, reject yourself, you're just rejecting poison in your system, right? So see the spark, recognize, aha, sarcasm, contempt, greed, lust, selfishness, whatever's coming up. I see it's coming up, but number one, I don't really have to suffer. I can simply be aware of it and let it die a natural death. I can see it's disturbing my mind. Well, I can be aware of that too, but that too will pass. And so, yes, I'm ill right now, but at least I'm not contagious. And before I get back into action, I'm going to make sure that I'm not contagious. I'm going to make sure that my mind's at least back to neutral. This is the core message of Shantideva's fifth chapter on introspection. Whenever you see this, I, I would go on for five hours if I could keep you here, if that's what it would take to get this message in. Because, man, there's so much unnecessary damage we do to each other. By not being aware of the mental addiction when they come up, and then learning about them only after they gush out our mouths, and sometimes it's weeks or months later, oh, gee, Maybe my motivation wasn't all that pure. Oh, gee, maybe that wasn't so wise. Oh, gee, maybe I made a big mess here. Maybe the karma is not going to be that great. Oh, gee, you know, what part of Shantideva didn't he understand here? When the mental addiction arises, recognize it and be like a piece of wood. 
Don't move. Quarantine yourself. Do yourself a favor. Do everybody a favor. You see, if you let that out in the world, you've just puked all over everybody's co co cockpit. And they'll have to smell it and clean up the mess. You know? So this cannot be, cannot be overemphasized. Cannot be. We can't simply decide not to have mental afflictions anymore. I wish we could. I wish I could wave a, a wand, but even the Buddha can't do it, let alone some old twerp like me. You know? But when they come up, be aware of them. And then not judgmentally, oh, I'm a terrible person, oh, terrible me, oh, I'm progressing so slowly, oh, I'm the worst medic, oh, cut the crap. Mental afflictions happen. So what do we do? We deal with it. What else are you going to do? Not deal with it? You know, it happens. So okay, be happy. Be happy that everybody, that is not be happy, but acknowledge everybody around you has mental afflictions, unless they're arhats and buddhas and so forth. And we have mental afflictions too. So we're a part of a big party here, but we're tremendously fortunate unbelievably fortunate to have the ability to recognize mental, mental afflictions as mental afflictions you know, and to have antidotes. And if it's a long trip or a short trip, whether we're gifted or not so terrific, oh, boo-hoo, you know, deal with it. Some people are more gifted, some less. Well, that's because they've been working on it for past lives. If you want to be gifted, okay, start working now, you'll be gifted in your future life, right? So this is so important, so beneficial as little violence as possible in our own minds by not identifying with the mental afflictions and for the people around us by not manifesting them through behavior. We'll save ourselves so much grief. This world would practically turn into a pure land if everybody did that. So that's one point, and then a related point. It's very closely related. I still hear people coming in when they, and now you're going to have to be really nervous when you come in to see me. Did you be really nervous? And that is I still have people coming in Oh, I had some really bad days this week. I had some really bad sessions. I had some good sessions, but I really had bad sessions. Come on. Let's get real here. What makes a session good or bad? What happens to you or what you do with it? We can't simply control. I'm going to have no rumination today. I'm going to have no dullness excitation. I'm going to have no boredom. I'm going to have superb, ongoing, 100% enthusiasm. Got any control over that? Right. What happens to you? What rises in the space of your mind in terms of excitation, dullness, and so forth and so on? Emotions and so forth? If you do, you're a better person than I, which you may very well be anyway. But what happens to us? Just go back and, and you, know, you can find it. It's in the book Stilling the Mind. It's, you can find it that two-page list of signs of progress. How many of those were bad days? Paranoia, mental afflictions rising one after another that you, you're just pulled helplessly to have to follow them, depression, uh, anxiety, pain throughout your whole body, grief like a mother camel who's lost her calf, and it goes on and, and on and on. And there are signs of progress. So how can you say, if so signs of progress occur, that's a bad day? What, do you want to have no signs of progress? Do you want to just have one pleasant hedonic day after another? That's not shamatha. I think it's marijuana, actually. <laughs> I tried marijuana a long time ago. Every time I tried it, it was pleasant. Every, uh, yeah, yeah, every time. <laughs> I thought of hashish once. That was really bad. Um, but um, a long time ago. So, every, so if you want to just have pleasant all the day, I think you came to the wrong place. This is a path of self-knowledge. You've all figured that out. And as you're on a path of self-knowledge, 
unless you have an incredibly pure mind already, for which I would congratulate you, your path of self-knowledge is going to see some really lovely things coming up and some not-so-lovely things coming up. And so he pointed out a whole string of when you're dredging your psyche, these are the kinds of things you may expect to occur. Regard them as signs of progress because you are doing the work that needs to be done. You are dredging what comes up, but it's not just I'm meditating and, now, and therefore I'm miserable, I'm depressed, I've got pain in the body, mental afflictions, I'm paranoid, and so forth. It's seeing these come up and not identifying with them, right? That you continue to practice even when the crap hits the fan. You, know, you continue to practice. So I would really encourage you. I'm now wanting to make you nervous. I think I, I, I have a right, you know? I want to make you nervous. When you come in, of course, report whatever's happening, whatever you'd like to share with me. I'm happy. I'm here to help you in any way I can. But I'm much more interested in hearing when you had these days that were very challenging, how did you respond? Not whether it happened or not. Not whether you're having a whole bunch of energy flushes in your body, whether you're having insomnia, whether you're feeling depressed, whether you're feeling agitated, whether you're having an enormous amount of rumination, whether you're feeling dullness, you're feeling sleepy. That, that, that happens. That, I'm, there's no surprise there. It happens. So, okay, that's fine. You can tell me. Don't need to be embarrassed. But what I'm really interested in is when you have these signs of progress or possibly indications that you're not practicing correctly. Either way, I'm here to help. I mean, why else would we going to be here, really? You know? But what I'm really interested in is when these happen, how did you respond? If you say, last Wednesday, my motivation got really selfish and I was practicing like, I don't really care about anybody else now. I just care about myself and what I really want is to be sexier. I want to be more attractive to women so I can have a lot of sex and I continue practicing meditation with that motivation. I say, that was a really bad day. That was a really bad day. I think when you need some help, let's talk. You know? Your motivation is... Went down a notch, you know? That's what you're bringing to the meditation, right? Or I was meditating, I was meditating with so much anger that I thought if I can develop shamatha, I can develop paranormal abilities, and I can kill this bastard that treated me badly a while back. I say, that's a bad day. Uh, let's work on that one. I think maybe, you know, something a bit askew with your motivation. Or a lot of laxity and excitation were coming up, and after a while I just didn't give a damn anymore. I just watched it and fell asleep. Because I don't just, just don't care anymore. That's a bad day. That's a bad day. It's, if you want to use simple words like good and bad, it's all about how you respond to it, not what happens to you. That's where your practice is, right? It's really that. So again, of course you know I was, I was joking when I said I want to make you anxious, but I am saying let's, you know, let's re, re, recalibrate. Let's reassess how we're evaluating our sessions. You're going to have good days and bad days. If you think you're fresh on this, check for the last 1,500 years, 2,500 years of Buddhist practice. Good days and bad days, that's just the way it is. And some days feel terrible. Pain racking the body. One of you just wrote recently, I had this day where my whole body was racked with pain. I said, wow, cool. One of those, one of those signs of Yodhujumurimache, Vajra Essence. Good, you must be really progressing. And it did pass. Of course, I'm not happy the person experiences pain. But it was clearly a nyam, and it clearly passed. And then you come out the other side. Poor. Maybe some growth is taking place, right? So whether it's somatic, whether it's psychological, whether it's emotional, whether it's rumination, you're proving that you're a practitioner by the way you respond, not by how fortunate you are that you've had a lot of good days in a row. Okay? That'll happen. That'll happen all by itself. But the signs of progress are really varied. So please take that to heart. 
and I'm saying this for your sake, not for my sake, uh, that you'll give yourself encouragement. If you, see, if you come to me and say, on Tuesday I had a really challenging day, and you describe how it was challenging, and this is how I responded. When it happened, I went into Tonglen practice, and I considered all the other people who are dominated by rumination and dullness, and I just started practicing Tonglen. That really helped. Wow, I say, wow, you're really practicing? Well, that was, that was unfortunate to have that depression or whatever. But oh, you, or you had a lot of rumination, a really, a really junky day with lots of rumination, et cetera, et cetera. But you took into everybody into account, and you transformed that into practice. You shifted temporarily from shamatha to Tonglen, and you just opened your heart to all those people around the world whose minds are dominated by rumination, don't even know what that is, don't have no idea how to antidote it, and you thought of them, you invited them into your practice, and you cultivated compassion. Well done. Experience depression. How many other people are experiencing depression? I went to Tonglen. Or I observe it carefully as a scientist. I observed the depression arising. I actually slipped at one point into Vipassana because I thought this would be good to understand. Why is the depression arising? Is it simply out of the blue? Or can I identify factors of origination? Triggers for it, causes for it. I thought this is important. Depression is arising. Okay, it happens. It's one of the signs of progress, but it's also a sign of being alive with mental affliction. And I was slipped over into Vipassana. I tried to understand what are the causes for this? Do these need to be addressed? Maybe there's something here I need to understand. And that's how I responded to depression. I just want to give you a big hug, saying, I'm not glad that you have depression, but boy, you handle it well. You went for insight. You went for compassion. You transmuted into the past. You weren't just hoping for one more good day. You know? So it's very important to release hedonic evaluation of your sessions from day to day. If that's all you're evaluating, then what are you practicing Dharma for? Why don't you just go out in the world and try to be lucky? You know? Just try to be lucky. Buy your way in. You know? If you're after eudaimonic well-being, genuine happiness, if you're really seeking a path, then it goes through your experience, doesn't take a detour around it. You know? This is what religion is famous for, the, you know, in terms of its bad reputation. Is religion is for people who can't handle reality, and they have to go into a fantasy realm to be able to bear their lives. And they clad a big turd with chocolate, and the chocolate the ice is their religion, and the turd is their life. They say, well, I can't stand my life, but at least... And then they go into some, you know, some really nice little fantasy... Uh, that's how religion gets ridiculed, and rightly so. Right? But I don't think that's, that doesn't summarize any religion. That's any religion that goes bad. Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, you name it. People do that. But then other people do that with Marxism. They don't like their life. Oh, but if we all live in a Marxist world, wouldn't that be lovely? We'd all share each other and sing, sing little choruses to Marx. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? That's just one more fantasy. You know? Fantasy upon fantasy. So we get caught up in ideology, some religious, some political, some philosophical. They're often escape routes to what's actually happening here and now. So this practice, I think you all figured it out. I know you have. This practice is about getting real, isn't it? We're, we're, as much as we can, we're removing or kind of withdrawing our conceptual overlays of how we imagine things to be, you know, would like things to be, hope things will be, and all of that, and say, but this is what's happening. And this is getting real. This is a path of self-knowledge. And that's got to be good. It's got to be good. It's got to turn out well sooner or later. Right? So let's do that. Let's evaluate the practice in terms of what we're bringing to it. How boldly we respond with compassion, with insight, with skill in shamatha, with vision, imagination, with empathy, with loving kindness for ourselves and others. 
transmute it all into dharma. Bring your seven-point mind training into your shamatha practice. Don't have it be a parallel track. Bring your shamatha into seven-point mind training, your seven-point mind training into shamatha, and let your mind become dharma. Final point? Little, not just a technique. I'm just reminding you that let's go into the practice now momentarily. Settle your mind first of all. Relax. Ease up. Be kind to yourself. Loving to yourself. Soothing, caring, affectionate to yourself. Good place to start. Because that too can be contagious. It is contagious. Be kind to yourself. And then when you come out of your session, just you can imagine it. You know, you've got, you got family in the other rooms and you're taking a little time out in the, in the morning to meditate. But you just spent one half hour being kind to yourself whether it's practicing shamato or donglan or loving-kindness, whatever it is. But it's all coming out of, I'd like to find greater happiness, and I'm doing my very best to cultivate the causes of that. You do it kindly, gently, patiently, and then you come off your cushion, you open the door, you're meeting the rest of the world. What's likely to be contagious coming out of that? Obvious, right? So let's do that. Enjoy your session. See you in 25 minutes. In terms of the, uh, the vomit story, I don't quite remember how I ended, but I think I needed to give it an end. So and you know, swallowed it all down. And then, of course, we landed, nice smooth landing. And then I was, with, I was in college at the time. This is like more than 40 years ago, a long time ago. And got out of the cockpit, and they're my other buddies. You know, we're all kind of lining up. And I don't know exactly what I said, but I kind of think this is probably what I said. They came over and said, hey, Alan, how was it? How was it? Cool. <laughs> Please don't smell my breath. <laughs> oh, that's all. On to happier things. How about what's it like to achieve shamatha? What's it actually like to get beyond the ninth stage um, and actually fully achieve shamatha authentically, like it's been done, and even recently has been done so many times before? I have gone to this earlier, so I'm going to go quite quickly now. We're almost out of time. But the first indicator, you might recall, uh, is this sense of heaviness and numbness on the top of the head. So once again, it'd be so interesting to know to have somebody actually achieve shamatha with an EEG cap on while in the MRI. You can do that nowadays. The, the technology got so good, you can have both because they're very different measures. But that'd be very cool. I would be curious to know what's happening in your brain, dude. You know? so, and this signals freedom from mental dysfunction. So, you're, so all the kind of, you know what that means. Laxity, excitation, all that and the achievement, the freedom from mental dysfunction and the achievement of mental pliancy and mental fitness. These are technical terms. You know what they taste like when you get there. But just it, the mind is now unprecedentedly supple, malleable, smooth. It works. Now you say, wow, I thought I had my mind before. I think that was kind of a broken down piece of crap. And this is a mind. This is one that actually works. That's the first indicator. And it's mental. It's a mental experience. You feel that utter suppleness. Like an, like an otter just swimming so smoothly through the water. Just, whoa, like, very cool. That triggers something. Now we're going to see a whole bunch of triggering, of pratitisamupada, one thing triggering another. The next thing that happens is vital energies that cause physical pliancy. So you become aware of your body. Vital, vital energies, prana, that cause physical pliancy, then course through the whole body, like a total rush. The, the energies now that you've been getting all these spikes throughout the course of it, energy surges, imbalances, all kinds of weird stuff happening. Finally, you're having the grand finale. And that is, it's kind of like the dam broke. You're getting a little spout here and a little thing here and there along the way, a lot of little precursors, 
premonitions of what's coming you know, later on. Well, here it just all gives way. And if this total free flow of the, the prana throughout the body, and when those energies have pervasively coursed through all parts of the body, you're freed of physical dysfunction, so that same thing of stiffness, unwieldiness, rigidity, and so forth, and physical pliancy arises, a perfect counterpart to mental pliancy, which is the remedy for physical dysfunction. Once these energies saturate the entire body, there is an experience as if you were filled with the power of this dynamic energy. So it's a real somatic high. So that somat starts mental, psychological, then it goes to somatic. Now that triggers something. When physical pliancy initially arises due to the power of the vital energies, a great sense of bliss arises in the body. And so now you have this kind of this total somatic bliss saturating the whole, whole body. You really can't do much except for go with a ride. It's like being a surfer riding a 15-foot wave. You don't really have much choice. You can fall in the water, you can ride it, but you know, why not ride it? You're just riding this wave, but you can't, you can't decide to go back uphill. You, know, you just go with it. It's not a bad ride. And so a sense of bliss arises. So the physical pliancy triggers, just like somebody says, oh, you're a, you're a dope, and then we have a response to it. Oh, I feel bad. Well, you have the physical pliancy, and the response is, I feel good. Right? The somatic sense of bliss is the symptom of the pliancy of the body because the energies are now finally... You've got a tuned system. The system is tuned. But now, in dependence upon that extraordinary physical bliss, there arises an extraordinary degree of mental bliss. So it's kind of like your cup runneth over. You're like your whole body is filled with energy to the top of the head, and then it just kind of spills into the larger frame of your mind, and your mind is blissed out. Once the rapturous sense of rapturous pleasure of the mind has disappeared, that is, it's, again, I mentioned before, it's kind of like a, a pot of milk, and, you know, we, we've all seen this happen, you've probably done it, the flame's on, and it boils, and it's starting to simmer, and then it just boils all over the place, right? Uh, well, so your, your cup runneth over with bliss, but then it's like you turn the stove down a bit, and then you just have this nice simmering. So the bliss isn't gone, but it's really tapered off to something quite manageable, so that you could simultaneously experience that bliss and do something else. When it's running over, you really can't do much of anything else at all. Just go with it. So once the rapturous pleasure of the mind has disappeared, or subsided would be a better word, the attention is sustained firmly upon the meditative object, and you achieve shamatha that is freed from the turbulence caused by that great pleasure. So you say, well, thank goodness that's over. So at that point, you, you get to that point by all different methods of shamatha. It doesn't matter which one, finally, they all end up in the same place. If you were focusing on a Buddha image, just before then, stage nine, it's like you're looking at a Buddha. It's three-dimensional, glowing, radiant, incredibly high def. But then when you achieve shamatha, having achieved shamatha, then you just release the technique. is then release the image. You don't need to hang out with it anymore. Release the image, and then you're just resting in substrate, right? ready to invert your awareness in upon itself. If you were. Likewise, if a counterpart sign has arisen, you've achieved shamatha by way of mindfulness of breathing, for example, but then you lose it. Same place. There's the substrate. You've settled the mind in its natural state. You're left with the substrate, right? And of course, there's just one final thing to do, and that is invert your awareness in upon itself and experience that self-illuminating mindfulness. And now you're ready to go. The engine's turned on. You know, the engine's turned on. You've got a, a supple, pliant, malleable body and mind ready to do whatever you wish it to do. And it will be virtuous. It will be wholesome. This is a very wholesome state of mind. So... 
that's it. And we'll look at the state effects. That is, okay, that, that was kind of that great day. When you achieve that, then you'll look back on that day. That was, that was Tuesday afternoon. It will not be spread out over a month. It's going to be like Tuesday afternoon, Monday morning, whatever. Uh, it'll be very memorable. And then after that, whenever you wish to, you'll be able to slip right into shamatha and experience the state effect of shamatha. What's it like now that you're simply dwelling in shamatha? Right? Okay, that's what we'll do tomorrow. And then, but what, but what about, you know, what about all the times in between sessions? What that's like? Those psychologists call trait effects, and we'll look at those at day after tomorrow. Okay? Enjoy your day. There's the direction we're going.